0: Hey, Rob Warman here, and you are listening to Stimulus. For those of you new to the show, what we do here is deconstruct and examine why we do what we do, how to do it more skillfully, why we think what we think, and ways that we can do it with intent and more efficacy. We don't want to just go through the motions, and this stuff applies to life. It applies to work. For more information, just go to StimulusPodcast.com, or you can subscribe in any podcatcher you like. Today's guest is Dr. Jim Dolly. Jim is better known by his moniker, the White Coat Investor. Many of you know him. You probably listen to his show or read his blog or have seen him speak. And over the past several years, he's become one of the leading voices for financial literacy and intelligent planning for what he describes those who wear the white coat. I asked Jim to come on the show to give some perspective and strategies on managing finances during a bear market. And that's what's going on right now the bear most people even those in medicine which is often felt to be a recession-proof job are making less money right now and some have even been furloughed which is the same thing as getting laid off but with the implication that is temporary there are many challenges afoot and money is certainly one of them we cover a lot of ground in the conversation you're about to hear and if you miss anything don't worry we have the best show note writer on the planet and she's got your back. Some of the topics we're going to cover, the dangers of market timing, the value of a written investment plan, the white coat investor's personal asset allocation, how Jim invests his money, what he does in a bear market, why bonds become so attractive in a bear market. And we're going to start out this conversation with a question I had, and forgive me for my ignorance, but what does a bear market really mean? A bear
1: market, for anything that anybody's ever tried to define, and there's people that even argue about this definition, but the only real definition out there is a 20% drop from the previous high. So if the stock market got to, you know, uh, 30,000 on some index and it dropped to 24,000, that would be a bear market by definition. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to come with an economic downturn or a recession, um, but it often does come with a recession as well. And so when people are talking about bear markets generically, they might be talking about just a drop in the stock market. They might be talking about overall poor economic times. It's really hard to pin people down sometimes. But as far as a technical definition, a 20% drop in stock prices is about the only
0: thing I've ever heard. As I saw questions for people to, to ask you on this podcast, some of them were around bonds, right? So there was a bear market and people asking about bonds. And before we ask a question about bonds, like what is, what is a bond? How's a bond differ than a stock? And why, why are people thinking about, well, maybe I should do bonds and not stocks right now?
1: Well, the reason why is because their stocks went down in value severely and their bonds either didn't go down very much, didn't change much or even went up in value. That's why people are excited about bonds right now is because they just watched what happened to their stocks and we all try to invest by... Uh, looking in the rearview mirror, you know, based on recent performance. And so that's why people are are curious about bonds. But a bond, in essence, is – a different way for a company or a government to raise money than selling part of the company. For example, when you issue stock, you are really giving away part of the company. People who buy stocks are owners in the company. So when the company does well, they do well. As the company becomes more valuable, the value of their shares goes up. As the company makes profits and pays them out in dividends, they get their share of the dividends. With a bond, you're not an owner of the company. You're just loaning money to it. So there's treasury bonds where you loan money to the U.S. government, So it can do things like provide stimulus packages. You may also loan a bond to a local or state government. These are called municipal bonds. And you may loan money to a company like Apple or Ford or whatever. And those are called corporate bonds. But they're generally considered safer investments than stocks in that they're not nearly as volatile. You're far more likely to get your principal back. In the event of an economic downturn. And so in in a stock bear market, as a general rule, the value of bonds tends to go up. And so people include both stocks and bonds in their portfolio just for diversification. Uh, That
0: way, usually,
1: everything isn't going down all at once.
0: I hear what you're saying, and I can understand if one thing goes down, one thing goes up. But I don't understand why a bond would go up when a stock goes down.
1: People are just fleeing riskier assets For safer assets. Now, if the company's going out of business, um, then a bond puts you in a little bit different place um, as far as getting your principal back, right? Because the first thing that happens if a company goes out of business is they sell everything that they can possibly make any money with, and they return that money to the bondholders first. And once the bondholders are made whole, anything that's left over can go to the stockholders, And so the bondholders actually get the first place in line, and that's why it's considered a safer investment. But in reality, in most bear markets, what people are doing is not buying corporate bonds, they're going to treasury bonds. You know, they want uh, something that's backed by the ability of the federal government to raise taxes. And so what tends to go up in a really nasty bear market like this one we've had recently is treasury bonds, not so much corporate bonds. Because if Ford goes out of business, its bonds aren't worth that much more than its stock
0: was. You know, they both, you may be wiped out in both cases. When the market started to, I guess you could say tank, many people I know, many people sold everything, sold all of their stocks, their whole portfolio, so that they could hold cash until things seem to stabilize and then plan to reinvest. And I don't know if they've done that or what their, tar- like their reinvestment target is. And you, you said something so astute, you know, investing in the rearview mirror. And I wonder if that's kind of an example of that. What's your take on that strategy? Well, there's a few issues with the strategy.
1: Uh, I mean, this is essentially what we call market timing. And you've heard people say, you can't time the market. And there's a lot of truth to that. The problem with trying to get out of the market is at some point down the road, you've got to get back in. And at that point, you're going to be faced with this decision of, is the market going up or is it going down from here? And the truth is, you're not really going to know that. And so you're guessing on both ends, and it's very, very easy to get it wrong on one of the two ends and haven't really hurt you. The other thing that happens is people say, oh yeah, I went to cash and you get the impression that they went to cash at the top of the market. In reality, they probably were already 15% down by the time they went to cash. And a lot of times they actually sold at the bottom and buying high and selling low (laughs) is not a winning strategy.
0: We got a couple of questions that relate to that. This is from a Dr. Tiny Bustarelli and I'm guessing that's not his real name. Maybe, maybe, (laughs) maybe a moniker. He says, I'd encourage Jim to talk about, well, this is obviously he's got a particular viewpoint here. Talk about the fact that we will never see this happen again. Stock market, metal market, housing market, all down with a low short-term loan interest rate, very similar to 1929, where everyone you know to be beyond rich and just plain stinking wealthy like Rockefeller, Morgan, et cetera, made their money by pouring what little they had into the market. His strategy is pour money into the market refi your house, use cash out options or things that have equity like your house to pay off bad debt, which is debt. Borrow more money at ultra low interest rates. If you have something that will make a lot of money quickly then pay it back before rates grow up with your earnings. Okay, so kind of a kind of a whole financial package there from Dr. Bustarelli. And it relates to what you were, you were saying before, but I, I don't know, maybe there's some validity to it. Well, here's the idea behind
1: this, right? If the market's as low as it's going to go, meaning it's only going to go up from here, then yes, it makes sense to put all the cash you have into it, borrow as much cash as you can, and just buy stocks because you're buying them at a discount compared to what they used to be priced at. The problem, again, is that I don't have a functioning crystal ball. My crystal ball is always cloudy. Just like everybody (laughs) else, including Dr. Bustarelli and everybody on CNBC. And so the risks of doing this, right, is that you put all your cash in. Now you're kind of cash poor. You borrowed to the hilt against your business and your rental properties and your home and your car in order to buy more stocks. And then the stock market drops another 40%. You know, that's the risk. And now all of a sudden, not only do you not have cash, your stocks are worth dramatically less. And this attempt at timing the market has really not worked out very well for you at all. And so, yes, you are able to buy stocks now at a discount compared to what you could buy them at in February. And that's good. I like buying more stocks at a cheaper price uh, because you get more shares for the same amount of money. Um, But at the same time, pretending you know where the stock market is going in anything but the very long run, I think is folly. And so what I tell people to do is I tell people to have a written investment plan of what they're going to do with their money, including what they will do when stocks drop 20% or 40% or whatever. When I was a resident, my wife and I wrote up a plan, an investing plan of what we were going to do in a stock market downturn. And what our plan says is that we are not going to panic sell and sell low. But that we are going to continue to put new money in and we're going to rebalance the account back to our original percentages of how much we were going to have in stocks and bonds, et cetera. And so that's what we've done over the last four bear markets. And it's worked out very, very well for us. It's essentially forced us to sell high and buy low by rebalancing. It's forced us to continue to invest at market lows. But we haven't necessarily taken that to the extreme, like you know, taking out a home equity line of credit to pour more money in at the market bottom. When you say
0: rebalance in the bear market, what does that look like?
1: Okay, for example, uh, my personal asset allocation is 60% stock. About two-thirds of that is in the U.S. and one third's overseas. And then it's about 20% bonds and about 20% real estate. So when the stock market went down about 35% at, at its bottom in March... Basically, I was overweight bonds and underweight stocks. And so all my new money that I contributed in March went towards stocks. And if I had to, which I didn't actually have to in March because I had new money coming in. But if I had to, it means selling some bonds and buying some stocks to get back to that 60-20-20 ratio. But that's the idea is to have a fixed asset allocation, a fixed mix of investments with percentages assigned to them and actually written down. And that's your plan that you follow. You know, if stocks do well, that's great. You're selling stocks and buying bonds. If stocks do poorly, you're selling bonds and buying stocks. And essentially, you know, once a year or however often you've chosen to rebalance, you rebalance back to the original percentages.
0: I just want to make sure I have it right, man. So with your 60-20-20, it's your, your total amount of money. And so if something's doing really well, it's going to have you know a higher percentage and you want to take it out of that and then rebalance it into the other ones. That's exactly right. Now, when you say you're investing in stocks, is this index funds? You go in individual stocks?
1: Yeah. Let me be super clear about this. When I talk about investing in stocks, what I'm talking about is buying all of the stocks via a low cost, broadly
0: diversified index fund. Man, that, that reminds me of when I had $10,000 and I was a first year attending, Lucent Technologies was doing poorly, but they were such a big company and their stock had dropped in half. And we we'll talk about time in the market. And that's when I realized I I did not have domain transfer of my expertise in medicine to expertise in finance. And so the stock had dropped by half. I was like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. And so I put all my money into that. So all of it, all my $10,000 into one stock is like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna make a thousand percent on this. I'm gonna wear a top hat and a monocle to work every day. And then I think it like dropped to a penny (laughs) or something (laughs) like that. Painful lesson. You know what the um, logo for Lucent looks like? I don't know if you know, you see it, least see it on the phones. It looks like it's a circle. It's like kind of like this red flaming circle, which is what my backside felt like for, oh my gosh, (laughs) okay. All
1: right. That's precisely the question. When the value of a stock goes down, you know, it's like people are looking at cruise ship companies right now or AMC, the theater company, right? It's down 80%. Well, If it survives and comes back and thrives and people are all going to the movie a year from now, this is a great time to be buying that stock at 80% off. On the other hand, maybe it goes out of business this year and they go into bankruptcy and and your investment's completely wiped out, you know, and without knowing that you're basically gambling when you're buying an individual stock like that. And sometimes, yes, it pays off, but more often than not, it's, it's not going to.
0: I want to get back to something you said a little bit ago, which was your written investment plan. Or I mean, it almost sounds like a financial mission statement. And I'm curious, how do you do them? I mean, how do you write that? How would one get the foundational knowledge of knowing what are the basic parts to put in there and then how to execute? I a lot of, a lot of questions there, but I guess like, what is it? How do you do it? And how do you know if you're doing it smartly?
1: There are three real ways that you can become educated enough and come out with this product. I think they they range from uh, amount of time you have to put in and amount of money you have to put in across the spectrum. Now, on the left side of the spectrum, you have the way I did it, which took the most amount of time but didn't cost much of anything. And that's to go read dozens of investing books, spend time on Internet forums asking questions, read blogs, et cetera, until you feel comfortable writing up a financial plan. So I think that's one method you can do it. I'm not sure I can recommend it to everybody, especially if you don't view personal finance and investing as a hobby. On the other end of the spectrum is go and hire a good fee-only fiduciary financial planner to help you draft up a financial plan, which includes an investing plan, which includes you know the mix of investments that you're going to invest in going forward and how you're going to invest going forward. That obviously requires... Very little expertise, not that much time, but several thousand dollars in money. You know, it costs money to hire a financial planner and often at an hourly rate higher than what you make as a doctor. In between, there was a significant group of people I discovered over the years blogging and podcasting, writing books, etc. And so I tried to come up with a product that would help those people in the middle. And what it turned out to be was an online course. I called it Fire Your Financial Advisor, which didn't make my financial advisor advertisers very happy (laughs) at all. But that's what it's called. It's Fire Your Financial Advisor. And it's an eight-hour online course. And what you come out of it at the end with, aside from knowing that you got some basic financial literacy, because I actually give you a pre-test and quizzes and post-test, is a written financial plan. I
0: want to shift gears and talk about what what is happening right now and to the audience that you're speaking to, well, which is everyone who is financially impacted by this. I mean, well, maybe if you own like Zoom or Amazon, you're, <laughs> you're doing, doing fine. <laughs> you're doing exactly. really well, right. So, But a lot of people listening to this are on the front line caring for COVID-19 patients. They are also losing shifts. This is a case for you. You're making less per hour. Some people are really struggling financially because medical practice is their sole source of income. I think that that's probably 99% of people who practice medicine or involve medicine. I mean, you don't have to be a physician, can be an NP, PA, nurse, tech, whatever. That's your sole source of income. And I think that the the striking thing here is that it's happening on such wide a scale because I mean, people lose their jobs all the time. You know, I think you can look at this from the micro or the macro, but let's just talk to an individual and help walk them through this. When that happens, you either have a drop in income or a loss in income. You're probably going to be left financially wanting because your sole source of income has dried up, at least temporarily. First question is, how do you prepare a cushion for the short term when things turn bad, while at the same time appreciating the value of saving for retirement? Our generation, younger generations are really indoctrinated with the idea of how important it is to start saving early for retirement and people just shove and shove and shove money in for retirement. And maybe that's at the expense of saying, hey, things could turn bad, which they have, and you're gonna need a cushion to help you financially in those lean times. So, you know, you're saying 60, 20, 20, and how does does that fit into the bigger picture of saying, like, all right, I need money to help me to surf this out. I also need to invest in retirement. So that's a great question.
1: And I think one of the most interesting from an academic perspective, obviously it's very painful if you're dealing with it, but one of the most interesting things about this particular economic downturn is that it is due to a medical crisis. And yet the income of doctors and other medical people is so profoundly affected. Normally in an economic or stock market downturn, Doctors are pretty insulated. We have pretty stable incomes, especially in some place like the emergency department, right? I mean, people are going to have emergencies no matter what's going on with the economy. At least that's what we told ourselves until two months ago. And now we've discovered that our volumes are down 20%, 40%, 60% in emergency departments during a pandemic. And so this is really, I think, surprised a lot of us. And as far as this particular economic downturn goes, I think this is the most black swan part of it uh, in that our relatively stable incomes have also gone down. So how do you deal with that? Well, number one is the concept of an emergency fund, which is exactly what you're talking about, some sort of a cushion, something to live on when bad things happen. And classically, an emergency fund is considered a fund of you know, very accessible, very liquid, very safe cash or investments that you can tap in a sum equal to about three to six months of living expenses. Not three to six months of income, living expenses. Right. So the less you spend, the smaller this fund can be. But for example, let's say you're spending... Let's say you're spending $10,000 a month and you want a nice, big, fat emergency fund. You want a six-month emergency fund. So now you've got this fund of $60,000. And the idea is if your group loses its contract or you get furloughed for a pandemic or, you know, whatever happens, that you can live off that money in precisely the lifestyle you've been living for six months. But what typically happens is when something bad happens like that is you cut your lifestyle back as much as you can. You actually spend less. And so that six months of money might last nine months or 12 months. And if you still have income, like many of us do, I'd say the majority still have some income, even though it's been decreased, um, then it might last two or three years. And that, Cushion, that sum of money, allows you to not sell your investments low. You don't have to fire sale your rental properties. You don't have to fire sale your stocks at 35% down in order to have something to put food on the table with. And so that emergency fund, that cash buffer, is what allows you to do that. So where does that fit into my 60 20 20? It's completely separate. My 60 20, 20 is long-term money that I don't need for 20 or 30 years. And I don't even start putting money in there until I have a cash cushion or an emergency fund, if you will. Now, at a certain point in life, you build enough wealth that maybe you don't need an emergency fund so much. For example, if you're 80 years old and you're not working and you're living off your investments, well, all of your investments function as your emergency fund. Um, you'll probably still have something in a safe investment like cash or short-term bonds. Um, but essentially, at a certain point, an emergency fund isn't quite as necessary. But you know, if you've got anything less than a seven-figure net worth, you ought to have an emergency fund of of 3 to 6 months of expenses.
0: Your 602020, does that include your 401k and your retirement stuff or is that just or is that also another separate thing? It's like okay, these are just my investments, my 401k, that's in a lockbox, just forget about it for now. Yeah, that includes all of my long-term money. Okay.
1: So it's all of my, you know, my taxable investments, real estate investments, uh, anything in my 401ks or IRAs or any of that, all that I include in that pot of money and I actually manage it as one asset allocation or one pool of investments across all of the various accounts. Now obviously when I have the option to to get some extra tax protection and some extra asset protection using a 401k or a Roth IRA, I'm sure to to use that um but at a certain point if if you max those out you're forced to just invest in a in a boring old taxable non-qualified account where where it's not protected from taxes and it's not protected from your creditors in your emergency fund how is that allocated in my particular situation all of my short-term money is put into either a high-yield savings account or a money market account at Vanguard a money market fund and so it's cash Um, Yes, it only makes one or one and a half or 2%, but for that money, I'm far more concerned about the return
0: of the principal than the return on the principal. Okay, so that money, that emergency money, you are playing not to lose rather than playing to win. That's exactly right. And that allows me to take more risk, not only with my career,
1: but also with my long term investments, because I know I'm not going to have to raid those. For uh, you know a loss of a job or an economic downturn or some sort of uh, you know emergency that I need a uh, to pay a deductible on an insurance policy or whatever it might be.
0: So let's say you start rating that and you get a new job and you start making some money and this job has a four hundred one k. Would you put a hundred percent into replenishing that emergency fund or just you say you know what? Let's just do it over time because this 401k is just going to be such a great investment over time.
1: If you're in a situation where you need an emergency fund, that's got to be your first priority because that keeps you from going into debt. It keeps you from selling your investments low.
0: When I was talking before about most people in medicine having that as their sole income stream, I think that that probably applies to just most people in general, right? They have one income stream. Maybe there's some investments, but they're probably not living on dividends or whatever. They just see that as some kind of long-term Thing or it's just it's way off in the distance because they're not even close to retirement age or the age where they can withdraw that without penalty. So the the alternate income stream. I want to talk about that for a minute because that's another buffer. You know, we're talking about having these things stashed away. But um, for people in the medical field, let's say, what are what are things that they can start? cogitating. I mean, obviously it's like, Oh, I, you know, I could, you know, invest in this real estate thing or that, but like their specific skill as far as alternate income streams that they could start now. And it's like, Oh, I, I just have this thing. And, and now I have a balanced, I guess say balanced portfolio of what I bring in each month by what I do. Yeah. I think that's an,
1: I, the ideal. I mean, ideally you have 30 different streams of income and you can live off any given one of them. But let's be honest, it's really hard to spend a lot of time and energy working hard on some income stream that's going to bring you $2,000 a year. As a physician, when you've got this such a great income stream from your work, your earned income, it's really hard to spend a lot of time on these other things. So the other ones that I see a lot of physicians do tend to be leveraging their medical expertise in some way. And that might be doing some medical legal work or doing some consulting with an uh, insurance company or it might be some sort of, you know, blog or podcast that's related to that even if they, you know, monetize it. But if you get outside of medicine, I think probably the easiest one to reproduce, you know, you don't have to become a famous podcaster or blogger or anything to do this. The easiest one to reproduce is probably real estate investing. Because real estate investing, yes, it's an investment, but it's also in some ways some sweat equity. It's kind of a combination of those two things. You can do as much work as you want, or you can hire it out. The more you hire out, the more it is consistent with an investment. The less you hire out, the more consistent it is with the second job. But there is some expertise required, and obviously there's some risk there, especially if you're highly leveraged in in a time like this. I think I got an email from a doc who had done very well in his life. I think he was worth several million dollars, um, but he had maybe leveraged up his real estate portfolio a little bit too much. And he had $10,000 going out a month and $10,000 coming in, and now none of his renters want to pay rent. And so you don't want to get in a position where, um, you're now having to fire sale properties or turn them into the bank because you got over leveraged. If it's not producing significant cash flow, it's not really another stream of income anyway.
0: In 2017, when we had done our, our first podcast, I remember you actually introduced me to the idea of the real estate investment trust, the, the REIT. In your real estate investments, is it through things like REITs or is it apartment buildings and you're going out there and putting in new water heaters and collecting rent?
1: You know, at one end of the spectrum, you've got publicly traded uh, real estate investment trusts these these reITs these REIT index funds or REIT mutual funds um, that are basically you just buy you buy them on the stock market you buy them from a mutual fund company etc no hassle no toilet calls nothing um, but you don't have any control over them either and they tend to go up and down with the stock market. On the other end of the spectrum is buying the house down the street and managing it all yourself, you know, taking the 3 a.m. toilet calls, um, replacing the water heaters, finding the tenants, uh, dealing with them when they don't pay rent. In between there, there's a lot of other options that, that, you know, are some combination of those two things. And I've chosen a fair number of investments in there. For example, most physicians qualify as accredited investors what that allows you to do is it opens up this whole new world of investments, for better or worse, where you can band together with, say, 100 other investors and buy an apartment building. And so the benefit of that is instead of just having one door under management, the house down the street, now there's 200 doors. And so it provides a little bit more diversification of that income. And it also gives you some economies of scale such that because you're banded together with all these other people, you can actually afford to hire a single manager to manage that property. You can afford to hire a handyman to take care of those things. And, you you know, it's all managed, and so you don't have to do anything. So it eliminates the toilet calls. You still get some of the tax benefits. Uh, you still get the income stream from it. You know, and so there's a lot of things like private funds, private syndications in between those two extremes. But for the most part, people are either one type of person or another type of person. You either love real estate and you want to get in there and you want to do the rehabs yourself and you want to manage it yourself and you want to control everything yourself and eke out every tax benefit you can from it. Or you're the kind of person that's like, oh, I think real estate's a good investment. I don't actually want to do it. And that's the type of person that would go, you know, buy a syndication or a private fund if they were accredited investor and perhaps just by a a real estate investment trust index fund at Vanguard if they're not. Um, But I've invested all the way across that spectrum, and and there's definitely pluses and minuses everywhere on it.
0: I want to get to a couple of listener questions here, uh, because I think there's a lot of anxiety (laughs) in them. And uh, here's the first one is, I'd love for Jim to talk about student loans. I've heard various things about how quickly to pay these off. Most people say pay them off, and there's an exclamation point, but my financial guy seems less concerned about it. I've prioritized extra money going to retirement and real estate investments, and I haven't had much extra money to be aggressive with my student loans. And this particular listener says that hers are high interest, 6.5%, but planning to refinance it to lower interest rates soon through a private company. Curious, though, if there would be a reason to keep it as a government loan. So a lot of, lot of questions there. Well, I think, first of all, there is a reason to keep them in
1: government loans, and I think we've just seen what it is. Basically, on March 13th, President Trump got up there and declared the country in a state of emergency and said no student loan interest or payments for a period of time. And then in the CARES Act, that was more formalized that basically, if you have federal student loans, you don't have to make any payments on them and no interest accrues between now and September 30th. So that's the benefit of being in federal loans is sometimes Congress just throws you a bone like that. Um, You also have access to some of the um, income driven repayment programs that if your income goes down, your payments may go down and forgiveness programs such as public service loan forgiveness. None of that is available in the private loan sector. The benefit of being in the private loan sector is you're not paying 6.5%. In fact, I have had a few people tell me they are currently at 0.8% on their private loans. And obviously there's a big difference between paying 1% and paying 6%. Um, And so you can save thousands of dollars a year in interest on a $200,000 student loan, and you can put that much more money toward principal instead of interest. So in general, if you're paying back your student loans, you want to refinance them and get a lower interest rate and save yourself some interest and, and get them paid off sooner. But this is clearly one of those times when... Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a bad move to keep them in, in the federal department such that you got six months worth of interest waived and don't even have to make payment. What about the aggressiveness in paying them off? Well, here's what I've discovered. I mean, mathematically, it makes sense to carry debt at two or three percent and invest and make money at seven or eight or 10 percent. Right. The math on that cannot be denied. It certainly is a winning strategy. The problem is people are people. And behaviorally speaking, what we tend to do is we say, oh, my loans are only 2%. I don't have to prioritize them. I'm going to buy a Tesla. And I can tell you that paying off 2 or 3% loans does bring you ahead financially over buying a Tesla. Now, a Tesla is really fun to drive, but it's not the world's greatest financial move to buy one. And so behaviorally speaking, people don't tend to do the investing part. They just tend to do the hold on to their debt part. And so as a general rule, I think what I what I tell people to do is to try to be out of student loan debt five years out of residency or five years out of school if you're not a physician. And that allows you, if you're saving appropriately, if you're you know living on a, a, a lower percentage of your gross income, to not only invest, but also puts enough money toward those loans that they're gone within two to five years of coming out of residency. But I tell the doctors, I tell them, live like a resident for two to five years, and you're still living on that same 60 grand you were making as a resident, boy, you've got a lot of, a lot of extra money there with which to build wealth. And the truth is, it probably doesn't matter that much whether you invest it or whether you use it to pay off your debts, as long as you're doing something with it that builds wealth. And so, at six point five percent, I'd find paying that off to be pretty attractive. That's a pretty attractive guaranteed return on an investment these days. But at the same time, you can also buy stocks twenty percent off right now, and so that's pretty attractive too. So, no right answer there; just a lot to uh, to mull over and make the right decision for you.
0: You were talking about living like a resident, having some extra funds, and that leads into this next listener question. And it says for folks with the basics in place, such as emergency fund, well, wow, they they must read your blog, <laughs> such as emergency fund 401k maxed out, 2020 backdoor Roth completed. Man, they're, they're getting deep. 529s, et cetera. Nicely done. What would you recommend that we do with money coming in each month that is over and above our expenses? And they give a couple options boost investments in taxable index funds, pay down our mortgage, which is 3.75% faster than usual, increase our emergency fund.
1: What a great position to be in. This is where I want all doctors to be, (laughs) right? I want them to be going, oh, I have these great choices I have to choose between and I've already taken care of business. Here's the truth. You know, once you're beyond this kind of live like a resident period, if you're putting 20% of your gross income toward retirement, You can spend the rest. Go have fun with it, go buy a Tesla, go to Paris, whatever you wanna do, have a good time. So I think some people that have all their ducks in a row and uh, need to be told that it's okay to spend some money sometimes. Um, That's not the majority of docs for sure, but it's okay to spend money once you've taken care of business. But in this sort of a situation, I think it's all great. And if you can't decide between investing more money in a taxable account or paying off your mortgage or maybe buffing up your cash emergency fund, um, you know, split the difference between them. It really doesn't matter. Eventually, that emergency fund is going to be to the size where you're like, I don't want to put any more money in that because I'm only earning one or two percent on it. And I feel very comfortable. I could live for a long time off it if something happened to, to my investments and my job at the same time. And eventually, you have the mortgage paid off. And so when you've spent all the money you want to spend and your emergency fund's buffed up and you got the mortgage paid off, well, the only thing left to do is
0: invest it in a taxable account. I'm going to ask you to be a bit of a therapist. It relates to something you just said about spend it, right? Like, you've got this money, go ahead and spend it. But one of the things that comes up here is spousal income inequality, especially when one is a physician. And usually... Making more money than their spouse, and possibly they're the only one with income, and it can lead to a lot of conflict. Now, you can say that, yes, both spouses contribute to the well being of the family, and the one who's not at work getting a paycheck is contributing just as much, granted. But I, I, there's a big challenge with both spouses' perception of their contribution to the money in the bank account and who has authority over what for spending, especially this discretionary spending.
1: Yeah, I think I'm pretty much on one extreme in this argument. I am a big fan. When you get married, this is assuming things are going well and there's not, you know, a divorce being planned in the background or something. When you get married, it now becomes our money. It's our income. It's our debt. It's our investments. It's our spending. And you look at it all together. It doesn't matter whether that money is coming in from a side business, whether that money is coming in from his job or her job or his job and his job or whatever it might be. It is now our money. And so I think if you look at it from that perspective and you both get input into how that money is earned, how it's saved, how it's invested, how it's spent and how it's given away, that's when I think you're setting yourself up for success. Now, I know there's people out there that have his bank account and her bank account and he pays these things and she pays those things. I think most of the time that's probably not a great way to manage the money and you're probably holding yourself back as a couple financially. I think you're much better off getting on the same page with a plan. And even if you have to make some compromises with that plan, you know, somebody's always more of a saver and the other person's more of a spender, that you're going to be more successful in the long run that way. My wife and I are very firm believers that even the, you know, the person staying at home in our case, for example, when I was an intern, you know, at the end of my intern year, she stopped working as a teacher and started uh, being at home with our daughter. And so for the next about 10 years, you know, she didn't have any earned income, you know, until she started working for the White Coat Investor. And, but we never viewed that as somehow being more my money because I was the one going into the emergency department. And in a lot of ways she was doing, you know, a lot more hours of work than I was. And was certainly just as entitled to that money. And I assure you, if you end up in divorce court, that's the way the judge is going to be looking at that money. So you might as well start looking at
0: it that way too. I want to share my, personal story. And actually my wife wrote this. She is my partner in all of my podcasts. And I'm actually, I want to read this verbatim as she wrote this question. She's got to help actually create this entire script. She says, please share our story. No guilt spending allowance yearly. We disagreed on what were acceptable expenditures and it caused unnecessary angst. After years of questioning each other's purchases, and it wasn't malicious, I'll put in a thing. It was just kind of like, oh, do we have the money to spend that? What should we be doing? She said, After years of questioning each other's purchases, which in my case, me, was adding to my already huge fleet of bicycles, not I would say not huge, but a couple of bikes, (laughs) we, we finally asked for help from our financial advisors. To be fair, while I love bikes, I am teased about being frugal when it comes to purchasing clothing, computer equipment. And what they said was brilliant. Not only did it bring so much happiness to our marriage, but it supported my bike spending. (laughs) This is funny reading this. I, I hadn't seen this before. What they said, you both work really hard and you can afford to treat yourself things within the budget we've set up for you. They gave us each a no questions asked sum of money that we could use for whatever we wanted every year. They actually helped us write our kind of financial plan, our financial mission statement. The truth is we almost never needed to use it. We still discuss big purchases, but there was no longer the negative energy around it. I no longer had to secretly wheel bikes into the closet so my wife wouldn't see it. That actually happened. And that was an illustration of how our financial advisors have honestly been our best and only therapists.
1: What a great story. My wife and I started doing that a first month of marriage. We gave ourselves each an allowance that we were not accountable to the other person for. It's really pretty funny, actually, going back and looking, because we actually have copies of these monthly budgets back from medical school, you know, in 99, 2000, 2001. And it might have been $20 a month that we weren't accountable to the other person for. Uh, and then over the years, it grew, obviously. and um, But that, I, I agree, that's that really does help people to not... Harp so much on those things. But the problem is, then you end up with this discussion of what comes out of that fund versus what comes out of the family. Yes. Fund. yes <laughs> so exactly. The discussion. Uh, the good news is here's the truth of the matter. If you will take care of business as a physician, you take care of it early on, you'll live like a resident, you get rid of your student loans in two to five years, you get used to maxing out your retirement accounts. At a certain point in life, You have enough money that you can pretty much buy what you want. You know, maybe you can't buy a private jet, but certainly you can have a quiver of bicycles or backcountry skis or whatever it is that's your thing. You know, a whole closet full of shoes. I don't know, whatever you're into. And you can actually afford to do that. So I would focus on getting yourself to that time. You should be able to get to
0: that point by mid-career. You know what I think is a big challenge there is you feeling guilty, like you criticizing yourself for doing that. And you, you know Novel Ravikant? At Novel, right? On Twitter. He's kind of, it's sort of like, he's got an answer for everything. And it's always, it's always so beautifully phrased. And we're talking about spending money once your basic needs have been met. And he said something that I, I felt personally, my wife and I felt was really life-changing. This is, of course, you know, you've got to have your basic needs met and you know make sure that you're you're funded where you need to be spend without limit or question the one or two things that bring you great joy that could be books it could be like a, a Starbucks latte could be bird food i mean we we've got like six bird feeders in our backyard and we just it's you know bird food ain't cheap but we just like love <laughs> we just love watching the birds in the backyard or or bikes you know like pick those things that bring you great joy and then spend on that. And it takes away the stress and it kind of gives you permission. It's like, well, you're, you're saving all this money and it's a tool, but you can't let it fully control you and use it as a tool to, to help bring you some joy.
1: Yeah, I think that's good advice. I mean, I think the tagline you've heard people say before is be generally frugal, but selectively extravagant. Oh, I love that. And, and just, you know, spend on what you care about, you know, like my, my wife will tell you this. She's like, oh, you're, you're a total cheapskate unless you're actually buying outdoor gear, right? And then it's the best <laughs> of the best, right? You know, I just bought this raft where you got a couple of raft trips I hope we're going to be able to go on this summer. But it's basically spare no expense. I told the guy in the raft shop, I'm like, okay, set this up the way you would set it up if money were not an object, and so, he picked out the frame and the raft and the oars and, you know, everything you need for a rafting trip. And and, and it's just really wonderful to be able to, to do that on certain things that, that you care about and that bring you joy. But at the same time, I think the last time I bought a pair of jeans must have been more than five years
0: ago. My wife said, "Yeah, you know what? You might want to bring up how you buy clothes because you've got one pair of jeans that's got like a <laughs> giant hole in them. <laughs> You know, actually it, it makes me think of something that my lifelong friend, Tony Moss told me he, he said this, I think when we were teenagers, he was a very wise guy and he, he bought something that was really nice and really high quality. I think it was like a Patagonia coat and you know, this is back in the eighties. And it was just, you know, kind of stylish, but really nice. There was nothing nicer that you could get in our little town. I was like, dude, why did you spend all that money? He said, Hey man, I'm not rich enough to buy cheap things. Oh, man. I mean, it's like a Zen koan. It's so
1: beautiful. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that, but people use that too as justification to overspend. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, buy nice or buy twice, right? But, you know, sometimes you can eke that beater along for a long time, you know?
0: Yeah, yes. I think we've addressed this question other than to question. Uh, this is, boy, what a great situation to be in. I sold some real estate before COVID and I've got a handful of cash. What do I do? Should I keep it in a mattress, invest in the makers of isopropyl alcohol <laughs> or what? You know, the wonderful thing about questions like this is when you have a written
1: plan, you've already got the answer. Uh, it's basically, this is how you invest your money that you don't need in the short term it goes into whatever your plan is. And if that plan is, you know, in my case, 60% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% real estate, that's where it goes. But if I had just sold a bunch of real estate, I would probably be short on real estate and I would probably be buying real estate with it.
0: So here's a question at the opposite end of the spectrum. And this is from a doc who's, you know, maybe five years from retirement, not fully where they want to be, who just lost their job. And- says, how do I survive now through legitimate retirement age? And this is someone who has a house, mortgage payment, maybe a couple grand a month, a couple kids in school, working spouse, but they don't have a swimming pool full of money. 529 is not fully where I want it to be. Retirement is not where I fully want it to be. And, and just kind of feeling lost because you know the plan was there. And as you were saying at the beginning of the show, medicine seemed to be a recession proof job and now it's not it's like oh my gosh what do i do well first of all
1: obviously anytime you hear a story like this you're sorry to hear it because there are docs out there who are struggling in fact if you look at the statistics about 25 percent of physicians in their 60s are not yet millionaires You know, that includes everything, their savings account, all their investments, the home equity, their cars, their clothes, everything. They're not millionaires after 30 years of physician level paychecks. And so it's very, very common. But here's the deal, right? If you do not yet have enough assets that you are financially independent, that you can live on the assets for the rest of your life, then the first priority is you need a job. You need income. If you're planning to work for five more years, I wouldn't necessarily change that plan. But it does mean that you need a new job or some other new source of income. And so step one is just like even if you lost a job in your 30s or your 40s, or your 50s, or your 60s, is to work on getting a new job. Now, luckily, in medicine, there isn't quite the age discrimination that I think we see in a lot of fields. Um, A a guy that works in tech, for instance, if he loses his job at 55, he's probably done. You know, they look around at that guy and he's, you know, he's an ancient of days, you know, he, nobody, nobody wants to hire him. But in medicine, that's not necessarily the case, partly because none of us even start until 35 and until you're 40, all your patients are asking you if you're old enough to be their doctor. And so I think it's a lot easier to get work at 55 or 60 or 65 as a physician than it is in a lot of fields. But That might involve doing some telehealth. It might involve doing some locums. I'll tell you what, the locums companies are just knocking down doors right now, trying to get people to come and work for them. You know, it might involve uh, taking a pay cut or having to go back to something you thought you were done doing, like taking call. Um, But I think priority number one is you got to get that income back. And in the meantime, you're in damage control mode. You know, you're trying to cut spending. You've stopped your investments into your retirement and into 529s. You're trying to make whatever cash, you know, emergency fund that you have last as long as possible. But the main thing is you have an income problem and you need to solve the income problem first.
0: Here's from another listener. How should I think about helping our parents who are in their 60s to 80s who have just lost a ton?
1: Well, I think the first question is, did they have a reasonable investing plan to start with? For example, I think it's okay if you're in your 60s or 70s or even 80s to have some of your money still in the stock market or some of your money still in risky assets like real estate. For example, my parents are 75 this year and 50% of their portfolio is in stocks. And yes, when the stock market dropped 35%, Their stock index funds lost 35% of their value. But the other 50% of their portfolio is in bonds. And so their total drop in the value of their portfolio was something like 9%. And that's certainly something that a retiree couple can weather. You got to keep in mind, though, is that even a retiree is still going to be investing for 10 or 20 or 30 years going forward. And so you can't go all the cash on the eve of your retirement and expect your money to last. You need it to continue to earn income throughout your Retirement years. And so I think what I would do, number one, is see if the plan was reasonable to start with. And maybe it wasn't reasonable. Maybe your father was day trading and trying to make money in Bitcoin and picking stocks and market timing and had 100% of their money in the stock market or were buying options. You know, if the plan was not reasonable for somebody of their age, well, the plan needs to be fixed, not take on additional gambles in order to try to make the money back. If the plan was fine and they just lost money in the stock market like everybody did, but it's not enough that it's actually going to impact how they do going forward. Then I think the best thing to do is to encourage them to take a long-term perspective to realize that this too shall pass and to help them to rebalance their account. You know, this is an opportunity even for a retiree in their sixties or seventies to be able to buy stocks low by rebalancing their account from bonds to stocks with the stock market downturn.
0: It's interesting you're talking about retirement. I have seen some docs now that COVID is here who are a little bit older, but not quite Medicare age say, I'm out. And one of the big anxieties there is health insurance. You've always had health insurance through your job or like or through your group. There's There's something where you have not been buying it on the open market. He had you had such a timely blog post on this. There's some things in there that are logical, but some things that left me wanting. And I want to want to ask you about this. But let me quote from your post: question: What should I do for health insurance between the time I retire early and age 65 when I become eligible for Medicare? And your answer, I find the question hilarious, <laughs> actually. It is really demonstrative of our screwed-up health insurance system where we usually buy it through our employers. I mean When you really look at it, what's so special about health insurance? I never get these questions. What should I do about housing, groceries, gasoline, my cell phone bill in early retirement? There really isn't anything special about health insurance in this regard. The simple answer is that you just buy health insurance. But I question whether that's really the case, that health insurance is like any other expense. Yes, it's money. Okay, it's something you can buy. It's, I guess you could say a commodity, but the bite of pre-existing conditions comes and goes, it's gone right now, but it may come. There's a you know, low likelihood that you're going to be dropped from your grocery store, or your gas station, if regulations change. I mean, it's, it's hard to trust that you'll actually be covered. And there's so much anxiety around that safety net. I agree that this was a,
1: I had a different
0: answer to this
1: question before the Affordable Care Act was passed. And that they were no longer allowed to discriminate you against you based on pre-existing health conditions. But even back then, you could, if you had been continuously covered, then they would cover you when you moved on to new health insurance. And so even before the Affordable Care Act, the pre-existing condition issue wasn't as much of a thing as it was if you were going from having no health insurance to buying health insurance for the first time. Um, but for sure, there's some anxiety there that the rules could change, but what can we do other than plan based on the current rules? You know, I mean, what is the other option? Are you going to work forever just for health insurance when you otherwise have enough money to buy it on the open market? I mean, that seems silly too. I think that's a great way to frame it. What is that freedom worth? Yeah, exactly. What a lot of people just don't realize is that health insurance is really expensive stuff. You made some assumption along the way during your career that it was cheaper than it is because you were only facing perhaps 20% of the price of it. Your employer was covering the rest. But health insurance costs, you know, $15,000 for a family of six. That's what it costs. And so if you don't have enough money to pay for that, in addition to all your other expenses in retirement, you're not yet ready to retire. And the other thing I find kind of interesting is that people assume that all they got to do is get to age 65 and they're set. That somehow Medicare is going to pick up all their healthcare expenses going forward. They don't realize that There's a lot of expenses involved with Medicare, that it doesn't cover everything, that there are some premiums, and that even after age 65, you're still going to be buying some health insurance essentially on your own. You're just going to be buying it through Medicare. Um, And so I think people really come to this not understanding exactly how our admittedly screwed up healthcare
0: system works. I saw this line in one of your blog posts, and I actually have it in bold, red, big font in my notes renting your home to your business. Uh, like, wait, this this seems like the biggest bunch of crazy hoodwinkery that I've ever heard in my life. Like, what the heck is that? I mean, what type of business do you have to do and then rent your house essentially to yourself? Yeah, that's basically the way it works. I mean, is it
1: hoodwinkery? I suppose it is, but here's the way the law is written. kind
0: of all taxes, kind of hoodwinkery.
1: Yeah, I mean, here's the way the law is written. If you, you can rent your home to your business, if you do it less than 15 days per year, you do not have to declare that income as taxable. If you do it more than 15 days or more a year, it is taxable income to you personally. So the idea here, the loophole here, if you will, is to rent it to your house at as high of a rate as you can justify for 14 days a year. And that's basically the way it works. And the reason why they have written the law like this is for people that just, you know, did some tiny little rental. You know, they had uh, they rented out their property for a one night party a year. And now they got to, you know, do all the paperwork for being a rental property. You know, that's a big pain for one night. And so the IRS had to draw the line somewhere and where they drew it. Was it 15 days? It's less than 15 days a year. You don't have to declare that income personally. Whether you rented it out to your neighbors, whether you rented it out to Walmart, or whether you rented it out to your business, it's all the same. And so for anybody that has a home business, this is a much, much better deduction than the home office deduction ever will be. Uh, you can basically look up what it would cost to rent your house, and you can do that on a uh, you know any of those uh, um, websites like you would use if you were going an Airbnb or, uh, any web VRBO sort of website, see about what houses in your area are worth and you can rent it to yourself and basically take that as a deduction from your business and not declare it as income personally. So I don't make the rules. I just tell you what
0: they are. <laughs> You're talking about the home office deduction. And I, I I've had a quote office, uh, end quote since residency it used to be where i did my studying and then then i paid my bills and did my taxes and then i started like a hobby podcast and now that 12 by 12 foot room is where i pretty much work full time and what is the point in that cascade of increasing use where i can deduct that and what do most people miss on their home office deduction
1: Well, the home office deduction is okay to take. I mean, it's not a bad deduction. The simplified version of it, you don't have to keep track of all the expenses of your house and you don't have to reclaim them when you sell the house. The simplified deduction is very simple. You take the square footage of your office. In your case, it's 144 square feet and you multiply it by five bucks per square foot and that's your home office deduction for the year. It's super easy, but that's not very much money. If you could rent your entire house to your business at Airbnb rates for 14 days a year, that's way more money than you would ever be able to claim as a home office deduction. Do you have to have a meeting at your house? Well, for example, um, I I have staff for the white coat investor. I have five or six people that work for me and they come over and, you know, up until my renovation that just recently got finished where we actually have some dedicated office space. But up until that point, I was running this business off my kitchen table. So I have a legitimate business meeting with minutes happening in my home. (laughs) I mean, it's totally legitimate. You know, and so basically uh, for 14 days a year, uh, I rent that to uh, my business and um, and I get a nice deduction for the business. It's not taxable income to me personally. And and it works out pretty well.
0: I want to finish up with this listener question that I think maybe maybe should have been the first question or first and last is what is your mindset advice with the current situation? I mean, how to not freak out when it seems like all of your money is disappearing from income, from investments?
1: I think probably the best thing you can do is take a long-term perspective. And realize that, yes, your income's down for now, but what is the likelihood that it hasn't recovered a year from now? I mean, that's very, very low for most of the people listening to this show. They're almost surely going to be back seeing normal volumes in their ERs or hospitals or whatever, and, and their income is going to have recovered. Within two, three, four, maybe five years, the value of their assets whether it's stocks or real estate, is likely going to have recovered. You know, if this is like any of the other bear markets in the past, including the Great Depression, that is the likely outcome. When you realize that that's what's likely to occur, all you really have to do is get through the short term without doing anything stupid, like selling stocks at the the nadir of the market. And so if you can't invest as much as you normally do, that's okay. If you have to cut your spending back a little bit, that's okay. You can't travel anywhere or go out to eat anyway right now. So what does it matter? And just take a long-term perspective. Try not to panic. Try not to be anxious about it and realize that this too
0: shall pass. Jim, thank you so much. Always a delight, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Jim Dolly, always on point. Man, I've learned so much from that guy. Hey, if you haven't yet signed up for our stimulus mailing list, I know a lot of you have already, but if you haven't, you can do it at the bottom of the page at stimuluspodcast.com. Got the occasional newsletter, announcement, update, et cetera. If you got topics or guests you'd like to hear on the show, give me a shout out. Contact link on the website. That's going to wrap it up for today. Until next week, my friends, be well, stay safe.